The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week on Science for the People, we're looking at the imaginative ways we communicate science to children, and how to use science as a tool for parenting. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. With me is Melanie Keane. Melanie is a historian of science at Hummerton College, University of Cambridge in the UK, where she's a fellow and graduate tutor. She explores how science has been taught to children over the past 250 years, writing about familiar science, board games, construction kits, candles, pebbles, and cups of tea. Her first book, Science in Wonderland, The Scientific Fairy Tales of Victorian Britain, was published earlier this year. Melanie, welcome to Science for the People. Thanks, Rachel. It's great to be here. So how did you get interested in the intersection of science and children's literature in Victorian Britain? It started out when I was an undergraduate student here in Cambridge, actually. I was looking for something to work on for my final year thesis project, and I found this extraordinary children's geology book with the help of my supervisor for that project. And it just seemed that there were so many interesting ways in which people had tried to teach science in the past that were quite a far way away from our caricatured ideas of, you know, trying to cram children full of facts, that very stereotypical notion of the strict Victorian schoolmaster. So it was from that project, really, that I thought it was a an explored, perhaps, area, definitely something full of potential and really full of these kind of imaginative reworkings. So what was happening in the era of Victorian Britain that brought about this uh, influx of children's science literature? So there's several things that come together quite nicely, I think, in this topic. One is the fact that you have lots of new scientific discoveries, new technological developments, new sciences themselves, such as geology or chemistry, really for the first time um, being an essential part of society. And allied with that, you have new industries and particularly new opportunities for publishing books. So you have lots of new kinds of books and they're cheaper than ever before. So they're reaching new sorts of audiences. So bringing those two things together, there's a sense that in modern 19th century Britain, people need to know about the science and technology that's increasingly surrounding them in their daily lives. And allied with the publication, you see that there's new opportunities for education there to try and communicate this new science, particularly to children who at the time in this country don't really have a state education system um, in the sense that we would think about it now. So these books are really trying to address that new market, the appetite for interest in science, and also the opportunity to teach this new generation, these um, children who are going on to become, they would see, the leaders of the empire, really this crucial modern knowledge. So just to give people a sense of context, um, what was the cutting-edge science at this time? So it depends what you're you're looking at. I mean, everything from um, evolutionary theories to new ideas about physics and energy to new kinds of um, discoveries in electricity and magnetism uh, to new ways of thinking about um, what the universe itself is made up of, for instance. Um, so there's many different aspects. One of my favourite is the new paleontological discoveries. So this is a really very new science. This is something where there are very important discoveries made in Britain. So there's a sort of patriotism there, if you like, and something that really forces quite a lot of people to challenge their ideas about the age of the Earth, about whether there have been 
previous types of creature that are no longer around. Um, so I think geology and paleontology is perhaps one of the most exciting new sciences. Seems like at this time there were just a lot of different ways that people's sort of status quo views about the world were being challenged. Uh, paleontological discoveries, um, the discovery of bacteria, uh, that was, you know, still fairly recent. <laughs> this must yeah, have led to a really interesting sort of brain shift for a lot of people. I mean, one thing I think that's really important is that you really have a, a mass market, a, a bigger public audience for these kind of sciences, particularly in things like the new newspapers, magazines, what's called the periodical press at the time. Um, they're covering these detailed debates in you know, quite a lot of technical complexity. So it's not just a case of a watered-down version, but people have a really high degree of scientific literacy and, as you say, really interested in following the very latest in discoveries at the time. So did the interest in writing science for children come out of this understanding that it was more common knowledge, some of the science that was being talked about? What, what sort of brought on the interest in targeting children specifically for science information? I think one part of it is the sense that children education in general needed to be better equipped for the modern world. So you couldn't just teach children how to read and write and a bit of classical knowledge. Actually, what they needed was what we would think of as more technical training, more um, expert knowledge of, of the sciences. And also, I think it's very much a sense of that enthusiasm for all kinds of science spilling over into these different kinds of books that were published at the time. There's something as well appealing, I think, about uh, science for children. Often they talk about uh, particularly nature books for children being one of the more long-standing um, types of writing. So in some ways it's creating new kinds of books for children, new kinds of scientifically, technically um, really rich books for children. On the other hand, it's a question of updating older traditional tales for children, whether that be talking nature stories and fables, or in the case of the things I particularly focused on in my book, fairy tales. But I think it's important to see the fairy tales of science as just one answer, and within it quite a diverse answer to this question of how do we make science interesting for children. And another really common form was the conversation, what became known as the familiar format, or there are alphabets, there are calendars, there are you know, lots of other genres of writing which were brought into play and really both meant to be entertaining literature but also really exact facts. So really that up-to-date scientific knowledge was not sacrificed for these more childish literary forms. So it seems like a lot of the writing was targeted for children uh, sort of in their in their spare time, in their extra time, in their playtime or something like that. But what did education for children look at this time? I'm assuming that it were, were there were there science books targeted for children to be used in schools as well? Or was this phenomena largely about kind of the extracurricular time? These books were predominantly for uh, what we might think of as extracurricular. Um, some of them very explicitly set as family conversations around the breakfast table. There's a fantastic book called Breakfast Table Science, for instance, from 1840, or very explicitly set in the holiday period when children are home from school. Partly that's because, as I mentioned a little while, 
while ago, there isn't one universal schooling system. Um, some schools, and it very much depends on the particular institution, really rate science and have people there who are able to teach it. And they might have someone who would incorporate science lessons as part of what they're doing. But ultimately, um, and for the most part, this is something which is explicitly domestic. So it's set in the home. It's teaching science as something that you need to know about the modern world, but it's not in the school curriculum until later in the century. So there's a very important education act that passes in 1870 in Britain. And by the end of the century, you do have particularly uh, nature study, some of this science of common things, some of those sorts of lessons get into schools a bit later in the century. But for the most part, these are books set in the home and they're very much about rethinking your domestic environment, about rethinking the things you do and unleashing their hidden wonders. So I'm assuming then as well that um, since the I'm assuming that these books were probably targeted to a specific range of socioeconomic classes, um, that these books were targeted to people who A, could afford them and B, who uh, had the time probably to read them, which wouldn't have necessarily been everybody. Yeah, there's a very much, um, again, often quite explicitly set in a upper middle class home. And it's really these kinds of audience that, as you mentioned, can afford the books. I mean, sometimes they're a bit cheaper than adult books. So you have some famous examples, such as Michael Faraday learning chemistry from a children's book, Jane Marseille's Conversations on Chemistry. So it's not to say that children's books are just for children, um, but sometimes they're, they're a little bit cheaper. But some of them actually, because they're so heavily reliant on illustration and they have fantastically decorated covers, they're really prestige objects, often from inscriptions, from things that we know about how the books are advertised. They were given as prize books. They're advertised as good presents to give from a, a favoured aunt or uncle to the you know, nephew or niece who they'd like to see. Um, come up into a, a scientific um, literacy or maybe even career a bit later in the century. So I think it's important, as you highlight, to recognise that um, we're talking about a, a specific type of child here. Again, a bit later in the century, some of the things which are worked out in these slightly earlier um, productions, I think, do go into more mass um, education and particularly attempts to educate the working classes. That had been going on throughout the century, but it's debatable how much it actually succeeded. And in some ways, it reached a, a middle class audience, I think. Can you maybe give us a few examples of the books uh, and the ways science ideas were communicated to children during this time? As I said, the famous books are often based around dialogues or conversations. And something like Conversations or Chemistry is a really good example. This is something where you have a tutor, Mrs. B, and she has two children who talk to her about chemistry. And as they go through, each chapter works up about a different kind of topic. Um, that's a fairly common setup. And one thing that I've looked at in, partly in this research, but also in earlier work, is how those conversations were often based around familiar objects. So there's quite a lot of books which are called the you know, scientific phenomena of domestic life, for instance, that really show that underpinning your everyday world is uh, scientific forces and processes that you can't quite see. So one way to think about that is as uh, the increasing important role for the man of science as a domestic expert. So these books, they're not only 
philanthropic or attempts to try and charitably educate for sort of very noble purposes um, children in science. They're also a, a bit of a land grab on the part of the scientific community itself to say we are now people who should be telling you what to put in education systems. We're people who should be telling you how to, one of my favourite examples, make a best cup of tea. Sorry, I've meandered off the point slightly. <laughs> well, now I want to know how does one, what is the science behind making the best cup of tea? <laughs> oh, it's a very tricky answer. <laughs> um, yeah, there's lots of different, I mean, so one thing that I looked at was uh, some of the early lectures that really told you how secret chemistry is going on in your cup of tea. So you might think that, and there's lots of puns saying that, you know, we thought chemistry was a very deep sort of thing, but it can't be very deep if it can be held in a cup of tea. <laughs> um, the idea that unknowingly you are participating in you know, making a solution if you put sugar in your tea, or you're making an infusion by putting the hot water on the tea bag, and it, you know, different things that affect how the water boils depending on what the kettle's made out of and the colour of it. So there's lots of these kind of discussions the tea itself um, and increasingly those get drawn into more imperial stories as well I've looked at with tea so increasingly the global story of where the tea actually comes from and the tea trade and the, the manufacture of tea as a commodity as well those things get brought in a bit later on so one quite common way of trying to teach science was taking something apparently um, familiar apparently known and showing actually underneath its surface is all kinds of other things one thing I look at in the book drops of water. So I've got a chapter looking at the, the wonderlands that were found in a drop of water. And that is, I think, the best example of something that is apparently, you know, completely transparent, literally, when subjected to scientific investigation, reveals a lot more going on within its supposedly um, bland. So. It's quite interesting. As uh, we talk about the science of everyday objects as it was used in a Victorian era, I'm also reminded of the books you can find now targeted at children, which are experiments you can run in your kitchen and and those types of, of trends that we see in, in children's science books. And it, it very much kind of strikes the same chord that sort of using things that you can find in your cupboard or using things that are seem everyday and boring and, and uncovering something more interesting or more deep uh, underneath and using that to explain how the world works is. So in, in some ways, we, we're kind of using the same ideas to communicate science today. Absolutely. I think there's that idea of kind of kitchen chemistry, of um, revealing the wonders of what's around you, of grabbing things that are at hand and using them to make explanations of taking something that's potentially quite difficult to understand and putting it into terms that children uh, might be able to think about or comparing it to something they already know about. I think that is really striking in this period and definitely continues today. I mean, that's one thing why the fairy tales, I think, are, are one way in which the fairy tales are used, well, one way in which they're quite an interesting thing to look at is that um, sometimes they're used to make the, the familiar thing seem strange, to give it that kind of aura of magic, but also they use themselves as familiar reference. One, I think, fantastic example here would be Arabella Buckley's Fairyland of Science, because she not only uses fairy tale comparisons and descriptions as ways of talking about things by comparing, say, a seed to Sleeping Beauty, something which is dormant until um, she says it gets kissed by sunlight, in this case,
face and then it'll germinate and come back to life. But she's also someone who very explicitly talks about things that you can do in front of an audience. So that was published as a book, but the previous year it had been a series of lectures to children. And so throughout it, although you might think a book called Fairyland of Science is very whimsical and might have a, a strong narrative, actually it's a series of lectures and she reproduces little diagrams which says, you know, and here I arrange the magnets like this, or here is the picture I show the children, or here is the, again, a, a kettle. So employing those everyday objects for Buckley, I think grounds her fairy under science in actual scientific practice, but retains room both in that comparison level, but also in the way she talks about how you get to the fairyland of science. She says you have to open your eyes, she says you have to use your imagination, and then you can think about invisible forces as if they're fairies, and you can compare them to, you know, giants and creatures from, from myth and legend. But ultimately, you have to remember that you're in, she says, the fairyland of science. So it's a new way of looking, open your eyes, but it's at the world you're already in. There is uh, an interesting kind of subset of these children's books from this time that really mash together sort of science information and a, a fantasy approach, either from fairy tales or a very strong use of imagination. This is something that fascinates me because today we would see these two things, fantasy and science, as not the best way to communicate or as a strange mashup, but it seemed to be much more common in the Victorian era. Yeah, I think there's a few reasons why it's really common in the Victorian era. One is that they are fascinated with fairies, fairy tale, folklore, more generally in the culture. Uh, there's people who are going out for the first time to make collections of regional folklore in art, in theatre, um, in literature. There's all kinds of new fairy tales being written as well as new translations and ones from around the world, such as the Arabian Nights, people like Hans Christian Andersen. So, I mean, from one perspective, we can see the, the scientizing of this as part of a, a bigger fascination with the spiritual, with the what we can think of as the preternatural, with the fairy realm, and that complicated relationship that happens with, with modernity, with industrialization, with urbanization, with a a seemingly very fast-changing society. Um, but also, I think, there's something that these texts are really trying to do which goes against that sense that fantasy and fact are separate because they're really trying to carve out a new role for what they see as true stories about nature. So there's a, a really interesting way in which quite a lot of the authors, such as John Cargill-Bruff, who writes a book called The Fairy Tales of Science, comes out in 1859, has the most fantastic illustrations from Charles H. Bennett, but he is really explicit about talking about the fact that truth is stranger than fiction. It's one way of thinking about it. So they say that not only does science provide um, knowledge for the modern world that could be taught through these appealing ways, that children like these kind of stories, it's something that more widely people are reinvestigating in the mid-19th century, but also they have the best stories. And that's something that comes out quite explicitly if we think, for instance, about um, some of the new technologies. So they say what was previously fantasy is now fact. So you had to, in years gone by, um, only think about um, something like a hot air balloon. So you weren't able to fly in previous 
generations. I mean, they've been around for a while by this point, but this sense that um, something like the electric telegraph, now you can talk to someone on the other side of the world. And previously, in real life, you couldn't do that. You'd have to do that through a story. So there's a, a sort of interesting relationship there, which talks about both the fact that modern science technology has inherited some of the the powers of what was previously only a fantasy or a kind of fantastical imagining. Just as we can think about nowadays, um, things that are in sci-fi stories then get, or films, then, you know, the, the Back to the Future ideas about the self-lacing trainers or whatever it was, or the, the hoverboards, um, that then people are trying to make happen in the real world. Um, but also you have a sense that um, by looking at true stories, there's a, there's a sort of better kind of story there. So a better kind of fantasy, certainly one which is based on the most up-to-date and accurate scientific investigations. So therefore a, a good moral thing to teach children about, um, but also has all of the the things you could want from a good story. So you want a monster tale, then you can look at some of the new stories about paleontological creatures. Or if you want a story of magical transformation, then some of the things that are happening in chemistry about creating, for instance, a, a new mauve, so the aniline dye, the idea that you can take this black sludgy sort of remnant of some industrial process and then create this you know, amazing new colour from it. So you can see the ways in which authors really sought to argue for the superiority of science stories, but then also their um, connection back to older ideas about fantasy. It's quite interesting. Uh, I've been thinking about this a lot, even before I picked up your book, but it seems like in this era and before this era, there was a sort of overarching genre of fantasy. Um, And then at some point, it kind of splits off into kind of two larger hoops, the sort of fantasy and the science fiction. And reading your book, it seems like there, this is still in an era where those two concepts haven't really split apart, and they're very much intermingled. Um, Things like the electric boots that you Mm. talked about in the book. Um, Those, for me, seem like a very science fiction idea rather than necessarily a a fantasy idea. Were these two kind of genres, did they come out of this time or did they kind of exist before? I I don't even know when science fiction became like a thing. (laughs) Uh, So I would say they definitely come out of this kind of writing. Um, The first um, use of the term science fiction is in a book in the, I think it's 1851, certainly the early 1850s, where they're talking about this kind of imaginative writing for children and more generally a a new kinds of communicating science to the public. As I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, the sense that there's a new audience for sciences and that there's many different literary strategies that can be employed by writers, many different genres. Um, And fantasy is one of them, um, what we might think of as fantasy. And some people write you know very lengthy novels which are also very serious attempts to communicate science i think this is something that perhaps we haven't given enough credit to these more imaginative um, particularly children's books or uh, works of what we might now call um, popular science writing that often they work out tropes and ideas and things that really become staples of science fiction in the 20th century. You get this big development of science fiction in the early 20th century, the development of all of the the pulp magazines, as well as kind of quite set topics such as Mars, for instance, that really come into um, those ideas. But they, I think, evolve so much from this kind of imaginative writing, the bringing together of the cutting-edge science, the imaginative possibilities for science. 
and developing along the same times as the, the scientific romances, so the famous uh, publications by Jules Verne, by H.G. Wells, um, who, after all, has himself a very close connection with science education and with, with Thomas Henry Huxley. So there's absolutely a very rich tapestry of interaction there and lots of things which we can see in this kind of writing evolve into quite staples of the science fiction world. So at what point did we move away from the more whimsical communication of science for children to something that we would recognize now as being a bit more fact-based? I think one thing to really reiterate is that this is absolutely fact-based and some of the reviews of some of the books you can see, uh, they like the Fairy Tales of Science, the John Cargill Breath book for instance, because the reviewers say, oh yes, they've got the accurate facts there. Other books, The Wonderland of Evolution, really interesting book, um, quite bizarre, not so successful, um, partly because it's still such a live debate about evolution and there's different ways in which children are being taught about it and there's more fantastical, in fact, criticism of evolution is what that book is. Um, but you know, that gets a, a less good response both on literary and on, on scientific grounds. So um, I just wanted to clarify that the authors and the readers of these books really would see them as, as factual as well as fictional. That's something to try and um, get clear. Uh, but it, it continues into the 20th century. I keep wanting to find a neat endpoint where I can make nice conclusions for people like you. And unfortunately, <laughs> I'm not very good at that. It's sort of a messy continuity. Um, there are a few examples of this kind of thing in the early 20th century. I would say that there's a shift more generally away from that Victorian particular fascination with the fairy, uh, with fairyland, with fairy tales, and new ideas come in. For instance, there's quite a lot of books in the 20s and 30s, which are about the romance or the wonders of modern technology and engineering. So those sorts of things come in. Um, and really, it's because you also get the strong development of school science which develops from the end of the 19th into the early 20th century. So I think the place for these books shifts slightly. Um, so perhaps because some of the the gap that the authors of the books I've looked at in Science of Wonderland are trying to address, the fact that children don't know enough about science anymore, or don't know enough about science at that time, because they're not being taught it in schools, so it has to take place in these sort of more, as we said, leisure time. Um, maybe something around the history of science school education also contributes to that, certainly to the sense that for a lot of people, science is encountered at school and is just trying to learn a whole load of stuff about the periodic table or doing some experiments which don't really work. Yeah, it seems like maybe bringing science into schools, um, maybe... I don't know. I, I don't know exactly how to phrase what I'm thinking, but maybe made it harder to make it entertaining because it was seen more as work? Maybe. I mean, there's definitely something that happens with the history of science kind of careers more generally across this period. So in the beginning part of the century, and other people have worked a lot on this, including um, Jim Seacord, the sense is that scientific knowledge is, is gentlemanly, is conversational. So think back to those um, conversations that children were expected to learn to talk about these kind of topics. But it's very much as part of that upper middle class polite society um, to know about those exciting new discoveries. So you'd be able to talk about it when you went out to a, a science show or you went to dinner with someone. 
or you're just sitting around having afternoon tea, which obviously becomes very important in this century. Um, but there's a shift by the end of the century where you do have paid scientific careers and learning about science becomes much more a question of, as you say, work of learning a certain kind of technical skills. So you can go off and be an industrial chemical researcher or you can go and be a, um, you know, work in one of the new laboratories or you can go and be a um, sort of work for the, for the government doing certain kinds of scientific surveying, for instance. Um, or indeed science teaching becomes something that you can then train to go and do. So I think there is a slight shift there where it turns from being more of this conversational imaginative kind of engagement with these topics to something which is a bit more differentiated in terms of, you know, here's the chemistry that you need to learn in order to go and do that kind of job. Um, so there's, yeah possibilities that I think definitely worth thinking about. I wouldn't be surprised as well if the just that it became more known and and more it became more familiar. So the less fantastical the science becomes, um, just because it's sort of the background noise of your daily life that you're aware of, probably the the less fantastical some of these books maybe appear because they might not, you know, blow your mind as much when you read them. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. And something like the um you know, the books that were definitely saying that something was a fantastic thing from a fairy tale and now actually it's just part of your everyday life. You can really see that, you know, so trains, for instance, start off as being quite extraordinary and often compared to beasts and quite complex relationships with them. But then by the end of the century, they're just such a complex part of life. Um, so I think there's definitely merit to what you say there. And, you know, things like the master key, so the um, book by the author of the Wizard of Oz, Alfred Bell, there's this sense that um, that's very explicitly written as something which to future generations, he says, might not seem like a fairy tale at all. So indeed, we can see some of the electrical devices that Rob the Boy in that story gets given. They look a lot like, you know, TV or tablets or other kinds of, I mean, some of them, we haven't quite got to electric foodstuffs yet, but quite a lot of other things you can see, it was quite prescient. And also, I think in its complicated way of critiquing science, I think just as some of these stories are a way of celebrating and communicating science, we should also really see them as not just passive diffusers of this kind of knowledge, but in some cases, quite active sites of resistance. That was supposed to be an electric electricity pun about resistance. But as I was reading the book, I kept being reminded of the same what I see sort of a modern example of this, which was the Magic School Bus series, the okay. much loved um, Magic School Bus and Mrs. Frazzle. And uh, it seems like we're still trying to insert some wonder into science writing today for kids by bringing in a little bit of that fantastical element that I think the Victorian writers would have would have recognized. Absolutely. I think it was one of the really, you know, exciting things about science, which often people who are passionate about it and want to write about it and try and communicate is exactly that sense of, of wonder, of possibility, of creativity, the idea that there's these things going on out there in this kind of vast universe or sort of just at the bottom of the pond by your school um, that you can't wait to find out about and, and tell others about. So I think there's definitely that sense of, of possibility of wonder um, which runs throughout 
science education. One of the things that a lot of science writers today talk about is how to make science accessible and entertaining while also keeping true to the science facts in them and still educating. And uh, reading this book, it seems like science writers of this time were probably having the same kinds of struggles. I think that's definitely a concern. Um, and often you can see that because it, it gets commented on. People talk about that quite, they, they pull it out quite explicitly about the books. One way around that that the authors do, sometimes they sort of efface themselves and they present knowledge as if it's directly from nature itself. Bernard Lightman, a Canadian uh, historian of science, you know him, uh, he's talked a bit about this, this sense that you can then have an authoritative voice from nature, as it were. Or the other way that people do it is really by talking maybe in their preference about how to use the book, about the fact that they have based this on certain kinds of authority that they've perhaps talked to someone from a museum or from a, a practicing scientist, or they themselves have had scientific training. Um, so Lucy Ryder Mayer's Fairyland of Chemistry, for instance, very much is something that draws on her own um, chemical education and teaching knowledge, uh, also her own particular religious convictions. But I think there's interesting strategies that authors bring in, not only to make sure the science and the facts in their books is, as they would say, is as accurate as it can be, certainly um, in line with what's around at the time, but also the ways in which they try and draw on other kinds of authority to help bolster that claim. So whether that's other renowned scientific authors, educators, public figures, um, or by really demonstrating their own sense of where they got their own scientific knowledge from. If you were to suggest uh, uh, one of these older books um, for modern day children, did you have any that you think are still particularly relevant or particularly good at communicating the ideas? I think you wouldn't want to use them to communicate sort of modern science because it's changed so much. <laughs> I think the accurate fact people would be very upset. <laughs> um, but I think the strategies absolutely can be brought in and in some places are being used. Um, so the Fairyland of Chemistry, I think, is fantastic. And the Chemical Heritage Foundation in Philadelphia, who have a copy of the book, I know they've done a little short video and they've been exploring ways of using that approach to teach chemistry with events based around their uh, museum and library. So I think, you know, I would give that my vote as well. Melanie, thanks so much for being here. It's a really interesting book. Thanks very much. It's great to talk to you, Rachel. And if you want to learn more about Melanie Keane, or her book, Science in Wonderland, The Scientific Fairy Tales of Victorian Britain. We'll have links up on the show notes for this episode, which you can find at scienceforthepeople.ca. Next up, Desiree Shell will speak with Lynn Brunel, author of the book Mama Gone Geek, about how to integrate science into parenting. Stay tuned. Science for the People is a weekly radio show and podcast that explores everyday life from a scientific perspective. We are a member of the Skeptic Network, collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on science and critical thinking. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to support us at Patreon, to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter, and to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to Science for the People. I'm Desiree Shell, and I'm joined by four-time Emmy Award-winning writer for Bill Nye the Science Guy, Lynn Brunel. She's the author of Mama Gone Geek. 
calling on my inner science nerd to help to help navigate the ups and downs of parenthood. Good to have you here, Lynn. It's nice to be here. Thank you. So now this book is less of a how-to and more of a how-you-did, correct? Exactly. That's exact. You hit it right on the head. Uh, when I was putting it together, um, in fact, I had just started off just telling my agent some stories of, of my kids, and she burst into tears and she said, oh, my God, you've got to write this book. And I thought, what book? <laughs> Um, and and that's that's how it started because I'm uh, most of the stuff that I do write is actual how tos. They're science experiment books. Right. There, um, so this was definitely a departure for me, and it was really hard to write because it was a heck of a lot more personal than how do you make it rain inside of a pop bottle. Well, I agree with your editor. The stories were wonderful. Absolutely oh, wonderful. So do you think that's an important distinction to make, sort of between a, a parenting guide and a memoir? For the longest time, as I said, I didn't even know what the book was when I was putting these stories down. You know, I was trying to figure out what the touchstone was, what what made it something that anybody might even be remotely interested in. Um, and I think I had an epiphany when I just sort of relaxed into that sciencey nerd part of myself that's like fascinated with everything and putting that lens on some of these hard questions that the kids were asking or even situations that I found myself having to explain. Boy, it was like, it was just like finding an old friend and slipping my hand in and it would just, it just helped me, th- it helped me through it. And, uh, and then I thought, gosh, well, maybe there's something there, you know, the, a, a little combination of, of bringing science and comfort, you know, that's, that's exactly it. Science and comfort. The book was very comforting, <laughs> uh, especially for people who who are parents. So, how how would you describe your method of parenting then? <laughs> By the seat of my pants. <laughs> Um, you know, I think I have to remind myself to look at the situations that I find myself in as a parent with that same fascination that I find myself looking at things uh, that fascinate me science-wise, you know, because these are little beings that are getting bigger. Um, mine are actually just, uh, they're embarking on, we call it the magical journey. They're, they're all, you know, they're heading into puberty, which they love it when I call it that. Um, but when I look at it as a great big experiment and, and I look at them as, you know, um, when they're starting to exhibit that teenage behavior, it's like, wow, it's so cool what's going on in your brain. That is so cool. It's too bad you're rude to me, but wow. <laughs> Isn't it fascinating? <laughs> well, now, did you did you have that perspective on parenting fairly naturally, or is that something that, de- that developed over time? I, I think it might have been there the whole time, but, you know, you never know until you're faced with these situations, I think. Um, I definitely had to... Um, uh, you know, the, when I had said it earlier, comfort, I definitely had to dig into it for comfort in some situations. One particularly poignant part of the book, I think, is uh, my mom who uh, suffered from Alzheimer's. That was a rough journey. And trying to make that make sense to my kids uh, while I was trying desperately to make it make sense to myself, I found that I learned so much from my kids at that particular moment because they didn't know her before. They didn't have the prehistory of my mom. They just knew her in the middle of her disease. And for them, they were like, she's fine. She's great. And so I learned something just so important there. And that was just, it was just another reinforcement of this is a great way to look at things with that open, open open-eyed 
wonder. Well, let's let's just jump right in and give folks an example of what we're talking about here. Okay. Uh, can you tell me the story of the time that one of your children swallowed a magnet? <laughs> it was like a bad sitcom because it happened the day before he started kindergarten. The day before he started kindergarten, we had a, a handful of people over, and um, and everybody was having a good time. And I heard this shriek from upstairs, and I thought, Oh my God, he's falling off the bunk bed. He's broken his arm, you know. And I went up there, and he was on his hands and knees, and there were a bunch of kids there, and um, and he was crying, and uh, he had said that they were playing kitty cat, and that he'd eaten the kitty food, and I'm like, okay, what was the kitty food? <laughs> and he showed me, and it was this magnet that looked like a rock, and I thought immediately, I thought, oh no, you know, if he swallowed two, then we're in trouble. Right. Um, and so uh, I started panicking, and then he started panicking, which wasn't helpful at all. And I uh, got him in the car. We zoomed to the uh, emergency room and we sat there and it turned out it was only one magnet. We saw a cool x-ray and uh, he was freaking out. And I thought, oh, you know what? This is really cool, though. You know, I said, when do you ever get a picture of your insides? So that's cool. And look at that cool magnet. It's right there. And, um, and, and I was trying to make it seem cool until the doctor came in with like a handful of popsicle sticks in this like he said, you're going to have to go through his poop until the magnet comes out. And I thought, oh, my God. God, there's nothing. I don't know how to put a spin on that one. And then uh, on the way home, I was thinking about it, and I thought, oh God, what I had in front of me, what my husband had in front of him, and um, and we passed by these cows, and I thought, oh my gosh, I'm having an epiphany because cows. I do know this; they eat. Uh, around the grass, they'll eat barbed wire, they'll eat nails, right? And uh, farmers know this, so they make them ingest a magnet, which settles in their first chamber of their stomach, and that attracts all the mag- uh, all the metal stuff that they eat, so that it won't shred them, you know, as they as they digest. So I thought, oh gosh, well, you know, maybe that's what Kai has now. <laughs> He's got a little cow magnet, and then it just dawned on me, like, oh, we don't have to sift through his poop with popsicle sticks. We can use a compass. And so it was awesome. We did. We put the compass near him and the, the needle went. And and it was great because it took like 17 days. And so I am so grateful for compasses. <laughs> <laughs> and we turned it into a science project. I'm like, this will be really cool for you, guy. And he did. He, You know, he we traced his body and then he, he, he did this great thing where he tacked a magnet behind the paper and and hung a compass from the front of the hand and said, you know, find the magnet. And, and you know, it really did move. You could see the pathway. You could see it twist back and forth. And um, <laughs> This is an incredibly creative way, way to deal with a horrible situation. So yeah. <laughs> is, this, is this really the theme of the book? Embrace every awful opportunity as a chance to learn something? <laughs> yes. And thankfully, it wasn't uh, having to embrace the popsicle sticks. <laughs> you seem to use science as a defense mechanism. Mm-hmm, yeah. I think science and laughter to the both of them they're like old friends and it's that, you know, it's that hug that you go into when when you need it and um and it's always there. Both of them seem to always be there because god knows kids are funny. <laughs> oh, oh yeah. <laughs> but I have so many stories. <laughs> but 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 honestly, I I really love this because it seems like you know reverting to an age appropriate science lesson to your child actually calms you down, which by default calms them down. I do find the comfort in the whole great scheme of things. 
um, one of the chapters uh, was about my husband who had um, sort of been taken down by sepsis. He had a sinus infection for a couple of years and then boom, all of a sudden he was in the hospital. And it was this, it was a horrible evening of people throwing up and, and him being too dizzy to drive. And I, you know, brought him in and he passed out and uh, made it to the uh, emergency room in time to actually survive it, you know. But as I was there, you know, the little pamphlets that they have in hospitals to help you understand what's going on, you know, there was this, it was like sepsis news. <laughs> I thought, wow. That's a thing. I, had, I, I did not realize that was a thing. I knew I had to explain this to my kids. And I think because that was the that was the lens I needed to put it through. And I needed to spin it in such a way that, you know, the world can be a horrible place if that's how you look at it. But it also can be this wonderful, magical place. And even horrible seeming things can be really interesting. And um, that's, where I, that's where I knew I had to take it because I think I was in denial of, oh my gosh, 70% of the time, if you get sepsis, you don't come back from that, you know? And, and that's a scary, scary position to find yourself in with two little kids looking at you saying, where's dad? Um, and what I found out really was fascinating and really was a cool metaphor for life, which was that, you know, we're, we're jam-packed with bacteria. In fact, we are more bacteria than we are our own cells. We have more bacterial DNA than we have our own DNA. And uh, some of it we need, some of it's helpful, some of it's innocuous, and some of it is harmful. But even the harmful ones can sit there and be not harmful until they have enough. And once they have a certain number, what they call a quorum, then they send out this chemical signal. They kind of have a language. They send out a chemical signal, and then boom, they try to take down the big organism. So that's fascinating. And what I was experiencing on the other end of that was that it takes a village, right? So even if you're a bacteria, it takes a village. You're doing what you're supposed to be doing as a bacteria. You're multiplying and you're trying to take down um, organisms to survive. Well, if you're the organism they're trying to take down, that also needs the village too. And I just felt like in this community, um, people were, you know, catching, catching me, catching our whole family as we fell. And, uh, Luckily, it all righted itself. But God, it was so interwoven. Well, I think that's what's so interesting about this book is you are not trying to make yourself unemotional uh, with with these responses. You're, you're sort of adding science to make you more rational, but not unemotional. And I think uh, we frequently aren't. We see those two as mutually exclusive, and and you manage to to make them intersect quite quite nicely. I I, I agree. I agree wholeheartedly that I think that you know for the most. Part Part when you think of science, you do you think of a cold, distanced explanation of something that removes the human beingness of it. But I think that's where the kind of geek part comes in, which is that the wonder and the total humanness of wondering and finding joy in that process of wondering. And that, to me, is a whole new way of looking at science, and it's fresh. And that's, you know, my my soapbox when it comes to to teaching science to kids is always you've got the stuff in your house, you don't have to get special potions you don't have to get special things you don't have to buy you know you could do these things with stuff you already have around the house because it is all about joy and wonder and and that's to me the bottom line of science is joy and wonder and, and how much more 
human can you get than that? Okay, I really want you to tell the story about uh, the lizard brain. I could actually visualize this entire chapter. So we had Kai, and when he was two years old, we had Leo, and, and my husband and I totally had read all the articles about sibling rivalry, and you know, and don't leave the baby alone with the two-year-old, and blah, 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 and we waited. But Kai just, like, loved Leo. He would, he just loved him. And, uh, and we kept waiting for the other shoe to drop, and it never did, it never did, it never did, until... <laughs> Until Leo started having opinions of his own. And then it was all of a sudden, you know, they just scream at each other. And you're like, oh, my God. You know, and as a mom, you try to be calm. And then you start shrieking back. Yo, that's such a brother. And you love each other. (laughs) Which makes you feel like mommy of the year. And then I thought, okay, you know what? I got to look into this because I know that this is something normal. But I got to figure it out. And once you can explain it, maybe it'll make more sense. And so I was like, hey, guys, you know, here's what's going on. You know, we have different parts of our brain. And it's your lizard brain that's being taken over, which is really the amygdala, which is your, your the seat of emotions, right? And uh, that one over huge, because they both burst into tears and ran down the hall like, Daddy, Mommy, come, it's a lizard brain! <laughs> so then I'm like, no, come back, and Keith was like, what are you doing? And I'm like, it's true, it's true, let me just explain, you know, and I, I talked about how that feeling center fires fast, and it's what gets you out of trouble if you need to run from something, but it also is what makes you mad really fast, and it's the front part of your brain that filters out those feelings of like, oh, you made me mad, I'm going to punch you. If you actually give it a little bit of a second and it goes through the rational part of your brain, then you're not going to hit the person. And I said, just all you have to do is just remember to take a deep breath and count to 10. And and so we got, you know, that that's how we got through those moments of um, irrational emotions. And, you know, we have this, you know, (laughs) I think I started the story with the fact that Keith, every spring we have this part of our yard that is under a tree and it never grows grass. You know, it's got moss, and I think that's beautiful, but he wants grass. And so um, it's sort of the our Sisyphusian <laughs> moment of, like, I'm going to put grass seed in, and every year it's the same. And, and for the first part of the summer, we can't go outside on that part of the grass because of the neon tape that says, you know, don't grass. We've got grass growing, which... <laughs> It's like, let's just keep the moss. But, you know, um, so we talked about that. And the kids are, were always begging. They still do beg for a lizard. But I have a strict no rodents, no no reptiles policy in my house. But we did make a, we, we made a sort of a concrete lizard. And uh, and we call him Sisyphus. And it just reminds us of our little lizard brain. And it's never finished. <laughs> It's like we start it and it crumbles and we do it again. And So this is what I find so interesting. You explained some fairly complicated cognitive science in a really accessible way. With my kids, if you attach a lizard anywhere there, I think it's good. No, no. I think that that's probably, that's probably a good idea for most kids. So I, I was actually thinking, though, that the whole... In the book, you explained that you would use that afterwards, that keep the lizard calm. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, and yep. that's a wonderful... Wonderful verbal cue for kids. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, lizard brain, lizard brain, lizard brain. Yeah, that's the thing. And and because it is something that wants to jump out on its own, and it's perfectly natural. And we needed it way back in the day of of cavemen times, and we need it when we are in the middle of a fight or flight situation. But we don't need it when we're in a classroom. You know, we don't need it when we're in a situation where that lizard brain can get us into trouble. So sometimes it works. <laughs> No, 
Now, this whole method relies on a parent being able to think quickly, though, doesn't it? Like, well, well, at the same time, navigating your own emotional minefields. Yeah, I think so. And also, it totally requires you to have a sense of humor about the whole thing. Again, the science and the humor, they go hand in hand for me. (laughs) Well, do you think people can learn this? Because you said it comes very naturally to you. But is this something that, you know, people can read your book and sort of take some advice from it and maybe practice this on their own? I do think I think it is something that you can learn because I think it's just a matter of shifting that lens. You know, if you if you look at the world and say it's a crummy place, that's your lens, right? But if you look at the world and you say, oh my God, it's a crummy situation, but it's kind of funny. And if I read it in a book, it might be it might be hilarious. And to distance yourself a little bit from that, to step back and say, what's cool about this? You know, isn't this something interesting? And honestly, I do exercise that every day. Ever since I've been learning about the adolescent brain, I mean, it, the adolescent brain is fascinating that they, you know, as kids, they acquire and acquire and acquire and build these pathways between the neurons, right? And then when they hit adolescence, they start pruning out, the brain starts pruning out pathways that aren't used as much. And that's fascinating, you know? And uh, so when they act a certain way, I just, I just kind of, instead of trying, instead of letting it bother me, instead of saying, oh my gosh, it's so hard to have an adolescent in the house. It's more like, isn't it amazing? Isn't it amazing what this brain in front of me is doing, even though it may appear to be uh, really annoying. (laughs) (laughs) This is Science for the People, and I'm talking to Lynn Brunel, author of Mama Gone Geek, calling on my inner science nerd to help navigate the ups and downs of parenthood. What I really do want to talk about is, uh, is another story in the book that discusses how you dealt with your son's diagnosis of ADHD. Yes. (laughs) Again, another one of those things where I mean, oh, that wouldn't happen to me, and there it was happening to us. And um, and I thought, oh, everybody, you know, says that they have ADHD. It's one of those things, and we can fix this, and and I'm not going to medicate my child, and we're going to do this. And so, oh, my gosh, we put Kai through, oh, a whole year of oh, these diets that don't have gluten, and then we'll, we'll send you to yoga all year and all this stuff in the kid you know he's trying hard but he couldn't focus and then I just had this like well you know what our brains are chemical and electricity they're chemistry and electricity and if it if if something's going on and and something's getting in his way so that he can't get all this learning that's offered to him then we gotta try something right so we tried the pills and boom it was like the next day and I thought oh my god it made him suffer for a whole year because of my insecurity about being the parent that medicates her kid because there's such judgment around it. But I thought, you know what? It's, you know, to each his own. I tried those things, but I, I don't need to be ashamed of, of science. If if this is what's happening and this is what helped, then heck, I mean, he's he, it is truly better living through chemistry on this. And, you know, he was able to, to be able to filter out everything because that's the thing with ADHD. And also when we were doing this, I learned, oh my God, I think this is me. <laughs> but I just learned how to deal with it. I always thought it was just multitasking. <laughs> answering the questions, I'm like, I did that. Oh my God, I did that. I did that too. Oh, oh my gosh, I do that. But to, to see it get in the way of his learning was really the, right. the kicker. We just needed we needed to bring that uh, uh, to a better place. And, and he was able to filter out all the things because, you know, that's the ADHD brain. You're trying to do something and every other stimulus around, which is a lot, is coming in with the same weight and the same importance. And um, and then, you know, if you don't have it, you don't have to worry about that. So um, 
I'm really glad we did it. And actually, the reason that I brought up uh, this chapter specifically, it's a great story, but it was actually the activity that was included at the end of it. Oh, and uh, okay, I should point out that each story in the book comes with instructions for an activity. Uh, like the, the magnet story included directions on how to find the iron in your breakfast cereal. Which is so cool. <laughs> and the lice story explained how to make a jam jar terrarium for maggots and mold. Oh, you are such a dork. I love that. Um, and this one, uh, it, it has an absolutely wonderful activity on maintaining focus. Can you just walk us through that activity? Yeah, you know, it is, it's all about trying to put yourself in the place of someone who's getting all this information at the same time. And it's, it's just as important. So even something simple like, um, a strawberry, eating a strawberry. So if you really think about that experience, you've got that, um, beautiful bursting of sweetness across your tongue and a little crunch of the tiny seeds and the juice could be dripping. It could be cold. It could be warm, depending if you just picked it. And so you try to do, do that. Think about that strawberry. At the same time, you try to add two numbers at the same time. And, and, you know, can you do it? It's, it's, it's kind of impossible because you've got, your brain has to flip back and forth between these tasks, right? It can do it really quick, but it can't do it at the same time. And so, uh, you know, it's like, I, so that's what I did. A bunch of different things, like trying to remember the smell of something and the color of something, and then trying to remember all your teacher's names since kindergarten. Um, so it's like all these sensual information that's coming in, you know, how does something look, feel, taste, smell, and then, hey, can you do this logical thing? Can you use it to part of your brain at the same time? And, um, and and then, and then different things like timing yourself to do spelling things, um, spelling things out loud as you're as you're writing something else down on a piece of paper. Like uh-huh. I, I adore this activity. I, I, it has to help children empathize. I was thinking that uh, one could do it with the sibling of a child that was diagnosed with ADHD. Yeah, oh, definitely, definitely. Or even other kids, or even you know, sometimes teachers who don't get it. You know, right. um, and it, because and it, it really is a thing. I mean, and I had to come to that recognition too. Instead of it just being that you know he was acting out or or causing you know a disturbance it's like it's actually a thing and and let's let's deal with it and and here is that thing you know like if you sat down with a teacher who was just thinking that someone was acting out and you cut them to think about strawberries and try to add 14 and 84 um maybe they might have a little bit more uh kindness to the issue i I think that's wonderful Okay, now that's, it's actually, it's another activity that I want to talk about. Uh, the activity mentioned is in the, uh, is Santa real chapter, which is the same chapter as the Alzheimer's chapter that you mentioned earlier. Yeah. Uh, can, can you just talk about the activity for a bit? Because it, again, you're talking about, you know, complex neurological principles here, really. Yeah, yeah. No, this was, this was the hardest chapter for me to write because it really was, but I found such beauty in this. Um, and, and it was all about creating a memory. It was all about, um, uh, you know, the setup for the activity is that, um, as Kai was getting older, his belief in Santa was sort of coasting downhill. But my mom, as she kind of went further into her disease, her belief in Santa was coasting up. And, um, and it was that interesting intersection. And Kai was just, he was so present in all of it and, um, wanted to know why this was going on with, with Gaga's brain. And, um, I said, you know, here's the thing, you know, you, 
along with Santa and along with giving, um, giving moments, that's really all we can ask for these wonderful moments. And so you're creating this pathway between neurons and, um, and, and every memory you make may not stay in an Alzheimer's brain, but it could stay in yours. And especially if you look at it from different points of view, again, if it's something that you feel, if it's something that you smell, if it's something that you touch. So after that whole thing I had made, uh, I wanted to make it, um, it was a it was a really beautiful moment, and I wanted to have him remember it somehow. And so I was sitting at my desk, and I had this index card, and I cut these two holes out and put my fingers through, and I thought, oh, I'll make a little Santa puppet, because the whole idea was that he could be Santa by giving these wonderful memories, right? And <clears throat> I put glitter on it for feel, I put bright colors on it for look, and um, and then tucked it in, and and it's all a, it's it's about making a little finger puppet in order to. Um, uh, to reinforce, uh, I put her picture on it too. So it would be something that he would be able to remember that moment. Even as he got older, he would have this thing that would trigger a memory of another event. And so, yeah, it was a complex neurological pathway that it, we were creating. But, but basically what I was hoping was that he would hold her in his, in his heart and in his head a little longer. Now, did you explain to him those, those principles behind that puppet? Um, you know, I probably, I probably did. <laughs> Knowing me, um, but but basically, what I yeah, what I said was keep thinking about it because that's how things stay alive. Really, I mean, and and that's another one of those wonderful moments when science becomes this metaphor that's just I think jaw droppingly beautiful. If you keep thinking of it, if you keep walking along that path, that path is going to be well worn, and it's going to be something that's going to carry you forward. Man, I truly wish that I had this book when my son was young. This is this is wonderful. This would have given me so many ideas. <laughs> Lynn, thank you very much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. And that was Lynn Brunel, author of Mama Gone Geek. We've posted a link to the book on our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. Thanks for listening and see you next week on Science for the People. Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivelon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten. Coordination and additional behind-the-scenes support comes from the Enthusiastic Skeptic Network team. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. Science for the People is listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. In return, we regularly post special patron-only extra content and after-show casual conversations with guests. This show is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at skeptic.org. The show is hosted by Rochelle Saunders and me, Desiree Shell. Thank you.